so tonight we're going to be reading from Luke. Um, make sure I got it here. Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 10 through 21. So Luke 13, 10 through 21. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrite! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Thanks, brother. Good evening, church. So the church that I grew up at, I had a really, really good experience there. And it made a dramatic impact on who I am today. Looking back, my church made a huge impact on who I am today. But when I returned there as an adult, I noticed that the people who are there are pretty ordinary people. The building that's there is a pretty ordinary building. And this place that made such a powerful impact on me, in a lot of ways, was a very unspectacular place. I could say the same thing about me, like in my own life, that God has used me from time to time to help other people, but by and large, I'm a pretty unremarkable person. I don't know if you could find me on Google or not. I don't think I've ever been on the news. And I would say the same is true for a lot of us in here which is a little strange because we believe and know the God who created the world and the Bible says that he's using us to transform and change the world. So there's these huge weighty truths about us and about our God and yet the church feels so unremarkable and the Christian life feels so unspectacular. So the question that I want to answer this evening is why does the Christian life and why does the church feel so ordinary? 
Why does the church and why does the Christian life feel so ordinary? And what is God up to in our ordinary lives of following Jesus? So to answer that question, we're going to take a look at our passage this evening. It consists of a story, and then Jesus teaches a little bit about that story. So if you notice in verse 18, it says, he said, therefore. So he's going to start to teach about the story. And that's where we're actually going to spend most of our time this evening, in his teaching about the story. But first we want to see what happens that prompts him to say the things that he says. So let's take a look now at verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Okay, so Jesus is in a synagogue. That's like a church in the Old Testament before Jesus' death and resurrection, and now we have the church today. So Jesus is in something that resembles a church. And it says that he's there on the Sabbath. So Jesus being in a synagogue on a Sabbath should trigger our memories. He's done this before. And every time he's done this, it's ended up in a massive fight. Okay, so it's like Jesus is walking in a place where there's going to be trouble. And guess what? There's going to be trouble. There's a conflict that's going to brew when he walks into this synagogue on a Sabbath. So let's pay attention for the conflict that's going to happen. There's going to be two conflicts that happen. And I think Jesus is aware that these conflicts are going to happen. But he doesn't seem to care because... He's intent on fulfilling his purpose. He's intent on loving people. And he's not going to let anything get in his way. So he's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Okay, what prompts the conflict? And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So there's this woman who has this very painful disability. She can't stand up straight. It's been that way for 18 years. And what's more, the reason she can't stand up straight is because an evil spirit has come upon her and caused this disability to happen to her. Verse 11 says, a disabling spirit. So we know, church, that not all disability, not all pain is caused by, directly by evil spirits. A lot of it, most of it isn't. But in this case, for one reason or another, the kingdom of darkness targeted this woman and brought 18 years of pain and suffering on her before she meets Jesus. Now I say the kingdom of Satan because later in our passage, look what Jesus says In verse 16, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound for 18 years. Just want to get something straight. Just because you're suffering does not mean Jesus doesn't care about you. Okay? So this woman, Jesus has a lot of affection for her. We're going to see this in this passage. But she has to wait 18 years until she experiences deliverance from him. So whether we have to wait a long time or a short time, Jesus' love is still full and complete for all of us. Suffering doesn't mean that Jesus loves us any less. 
So he comes to this woman who has this disabling spirit for 18 years. She's bent open over and she can't fully straighten herself. And verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. I love how that verse starts. You see the first verb in this verse? It says, when Jesus saw her. When Jesus saw her. A lot of people probably didn't notice this woman. She probably went to synagogue. She probably went to the market. She probably went to different places. And people probably did not pay much attention to her. One unfortunate thing about the fall and about humanity is that we tend to pay the least amount of attention to the weakest. This is probably not someone who got much attention, who got much notice, but whose notice did she get? She got Jesus' notice. Would you be content if no one else noticed you in your life but Jesus did? Would that be sweet to you? And look who Jesus prefers to notice. He prefers to notice the suffering and the weak and the ones who need him the most. When you need him the most, he's noticing you the most, not the least. He's most attuned to you and most aware about what you're going through when you need him the most. Satan's going to come to you and lie to you and tell you that it means Jesus has forsaken you, but the opposite is true. His attention is grabbed by suffering. Jesus is always consistently moving towards the suffering in Luke. And here's one more example of it. He sees this suffering woman, and he moves towards her. And church, I want to challenge us. Do we see the suffering? Is that the kind of people we prefer to spend time with and to pay attention to? And he called her over. She says, come over here. Jesus calls over this woman. And he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. That's a curious word. You are freed from your disability. I would have think he would have said, woman, you are healed from your disability. Or woman, you are restored from your disability. But Jesus says, woman, you are freed from your disability. Why does he say that? The reason is because Jesus is emphasizing that he's releasing her from the power of Satan. This is the first conflict we see in this passage. Jesus comes across a woman who, for some reason, Satan has bound with a disability, and he decides to free her. And what does it say next? And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. How hard was it for Jesus to free this woman from her disability? It wasn't hard at all. He came with authority and power that Satan could not withstand, and he set her free. It took that same authority, it took that same power to set you and me free, to forgive our sins, to set us free from living in sin and death, and he came to us with his power and authority and set us free, and we see that right here with this woman. He set her free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
And oh, we should be thankful for that. Because Satan is more powerful than us, and he would keep us bound if there was not someone stronger than him. We need Jesus to be our shepherd, and we need him to be our warrior. And he was your warrior, and he fought for you, and he defeated Satan when you became a Christian, and that's the only reason you're alive today, church. It's the only reason I'm alive today. Because Jesus is not afraid to fight against Satan. And we're going to get up to this, but that's why you don't have to be afraid to fight against Satan either. So he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She glorified God. Not a lot of us have physical disabilities here. All of us had a heart disability. Every one of our hearts were bent away from loving and knowing and treasuring God like we ought to have. Every Sunday we come and worship God and our hearts are giving him affection and praise. Isn't that a miracle we should be wondering at? Shouldn't we be wondering at the fact that we're alive and we're saved from our spiritual disability? When we read this passage and see this woman, we should see us. When we see her glorifying God, we should see us glorifying God. When we lose sight of how desperately we needed God's help, we lose sight of how much we need to praise him. It'd be really easy to think of ourselves as, oh, I was okay. I just kind of became a Christian. And I guess I'll praise God now. But we were disabled and unable to praise God. And he came in and fought against our enemies and gave us life. And now we get to praise him, church. Isn't that a sweet thing? That's a sweet thing. And now Jesus has someone else to do battle with. Verse 14 is going to bring up the ruler of the synagogue, so basically the pastor of this church. You would think, wouldn't you, that he would be the happiest person at, if a healing happened in his church. I would be happy if a healing happened here. But it's really curious how he responds. Let's take a look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, that means he was angry. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. So Jesus healing on the Sabbath made him angry which seems really foreign and really strange to every one of us because I don't think we've ever been upset with anything like this. So what's going on? Why is he angry about this woman being healed on the Sabbath day? Now, one thing that had happened in Jewish history is they had broken the Sabbath a lot of times. And as a result, God's judgment came on them and they got sent out of the promised land. Now they're back. And they thought, wait a second. If we create a lot of rules about the Sabbath, around the Sabbath, then we won't break the Sabbath again, and God will stay happy with us. Jesus never breaks any laws in the Bible when he heals on the Sabbath. He breaks the laws that they made up to protect the Sabbath. Do you see that distinction? 
He didn't break any laws about the Sabbath. He made the laws that they made up to protect the Sabbath. Now, what's the issue here? Why is this person so mad? And I think the reason is, is that he was trusting in rules to change his heart. Rules can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart. And when you start hoping in a set of rules or boundaries that you've come up with to keep you faithful to God, you're not going to be faithful to God. The word that we tend to use for this is legalism. Legalism is when we start hoping in our own moral performance or our own rule keeping to get God to like us, love us, and accept us. And guess what? I slip into this and all of us can slip into this. Is it not easy to think that when I obey the rules, God loves and accepts me more? It's easy to fall into that. And it seems that this man, this, this pastor, this leader in the synagogue, had slipped into rule following instead of knowing and trusting his God. And rule following is good when it's done because we love God, not to get God to love us. So what happens when we elevate the rules over knowing God, is they become an idol. That's why I think he's so angry, because Jesus is touching on one of his idols. I just want to invite you to think for a moment, what makes you angry? When do you lose your temper? Is it your job? Is it your kids? Is it your video games? I don't know. What makes you angry and upset? And I submit to you this evening, that the things that cause you to lose your temper the most are the things that you're looking to idols as the most. If your kids come in and ruin your time or you're resting and you lose your temper, maybe that comfort is your idol. If things don't go the way you want at work and you get upset at your coworkers and your boss, maybe your performance at work is your idol. So one thing I want to invite, invite us to this evening is to pay attention to what makes us angry. Je Jesus sees this person as a threat. He's trying to put him to shame. He's trying to put this woman to shame. And he's trying to keep the people from coming to Jesus and seeing Jesus as their deliverer from Satan. Rather than working with Christ and for Christ, he's opposed to Christ. And that's what happens when we have idols that we obey and follow. We don't become neutral to Christ, we become opposed to Christ. So may we put our idols to death. May we put our idols to death. The Lord answered him, verse 15, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus points out, he uses his favorite word to get in people's face. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. When you're a hypocrite, it means that you're spiritual in name only. So this person appears to be spiritual, but he's actually earthly in his heart. And it, what reveals how earthly he is, is the way he responds to 
his animals compared to how he responds to people. So how does he respond to animals? On the Sabbath, he and other people in his synagogue untie their ox and their donkey from the manger and lead it away to water. So their ox, their donkey gets thirsty, they untie it and let it go get water. Now that word, untie, is actually the same word Jesus uses as in a few verses later when he says, ought not this daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So this leader of the synagogue is saying, or his behavior is saying, I'm going to care for my animals and I'm going to set them free to go and get water on the Sabbath day. But this woman who's been disabled for 18 years, I'm going to try to put a stop to her becoming free on the Sabbath day. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Our hypocrisy shows through in inconsistent ways we mistreat people. And that's what happened in this case. His inconsistency, his preference of treating animals well over people well, demonstrated his heart of hypocrisy and his lack of spiritual renewal. When we're spiritually renewed, we treat other people well. We love other people like Christ has loved us. So Jesus says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day was actually the most appropriate day for her to be set free. It wasn't a day for her not to be set free. It was a day for her to be set free. The Sabbath day is a day of the week that looked back to the creation of the world when everything was as it ought to be before the sin into fall and sin and misery to death. And it's a day that looks forward to the day when everything will be set right again. So ought not that day, especially of all days, be a day for Jesus to heal this woman, to restore her to life as a picture of what he's going to do finally on that day to come. Friends, what Jesus has done for this woman is a reminder that none of us will have to suffer forever. None of us will have to suffer forever. If you're trusting in Jesus, suffering at his worst becomes temporary because Christ has defeated Satan, is defeating Satan, and will defeat Satan. Jesus has defeated death, he is defeating death, and he will defeat death. The worst suffering anyone will ever go through is only temporary, and this woman is a picture of it, and Jesus does it on the Sabbath to prove, show, and demonstrate that he has defeated his enemy forever. He picked this day to mark Satan and say, your reign is over, your time is coming to an end. Jesus has an adversarial spirit towards the kingdom of darkness. In church, we ought to too. We ought to love people and hate the evil that enslaves them. And our life, our love, our prayers should have a tenor of hating the kingdom of darkness and of knowing that Jesus has defeated it. He's unraveled it. He's destroying it. And he's using you to do it. We're in a war against the evil one. And this is what it looks like. 
It looks like the weak and the lost being rescued and saved from their oppressor. And Jesus wants to use you to be a part of that. We're going to get to this in a moment, but wouldn't you be happy if this is what your life consisted of? Hitting Satan in the face by rescuing people from his grip. Wouldn't that be a good way to spend your life? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So the synagogue leader tried to shame Jesus. Jesus shamed him. The people in the synagogue, some of them probably agreeing with the synagogue leader, tried to shame Jesus. Jesus shamed them. He put them to shame by showing them their hypocrisy. As you try to live for Jesus, other people will try to put you to shame. And Jesus will make it clear who's right and who's wrong one day. You don't have to avenge yourself. You don't have to protect your reputation. You don't have to retaliate. If someone needs to be put to shame, Jesus will take care of that. He didn't let it stand here, and he will not let it stand on the day of judgment. Jesus takes care of his people. Jesus defeats his enemies. Jesus does not hold back, and he never loses. So you don't, you don't have to be worried about being put to shame. I hate the feeling of shame. And I love the fact that Jesus is destroying shame forever for his people. So that's the story. Jesus shows up at a synagogue. He releases a woman from her disability. He puts to shame the leader of that synagogue who is opposing him. Jesus one, Jesus two, Jesus three, enemy zero. And then he has a story for us, or I'm sorry, a little teaching for us. Verse 18. He said, therefore. So whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore? Thank you. The therefore is showing that what comes next is a consequence of what came before. So this episode at the synagogue prompted Jesus, prompted Jesus to want to say what he's about to say next. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed and a man that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nest in its branches. That's a really curious thing for Jesus to say at this point. So he's talking about his kingdom, okay? Just so we're all clear on what his kingdom is, his, the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people and God's place. So we're God's people who are trusting him. We're under his rule and we're awaiting the place where we'll be with him forever. The kingdom is arriving day by day. It's getting nearer as more and more people become fully obedient to Jesus and we await the day where we'll fully be here. And Jesus wants to teach, well, what, what is it like to be in this kingdom? What are the people like in this kingdom? And Jesus says, it's like a mustard seed that becomes a tree. Now, Charlotte actually found me some mustard seeds. They're in this bag. 
Raise your hand if you can see him at all. There, you can't, you can hardly see him in there. I promise they're there. I thought they'd be a little more visible than this. Nope, that's not going to help. There's, there, there's a seed in my finger. And Jesus says the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that becomes a tree. And, and I have a picture of a mustard tree here. I, I think that's where the mustard comes from that we put on our brats, maybe. But the seed becomes a tree. And I think the point is, is that no one would ever expect this little seed to become that tree. Unless you knew about seeds, unless you knew about plants, you wouldn't expect this little seed to become that tree, would you? Jesus' point is that the kingdom of God consists of unexpected big things. Small beginnings do not mean small destinies. And things that start small end up unexpectedly big. And unless we grasp this point, church, we are going to lose hope in the Christian life. We're going to lose hope, and we're going to lose our passion, and we're going to lose our endurance unless we understand that little seeds become big trees. So I want to point out four different kinds of mustard seeds, and they're all metaphors. Okay? That's what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon. We're going to talk about four different mustard seeds. The first mustard seed is this woman in the story. So Jesus shows up at this synagogue. Jesus shows up at this church. And you would think maybe his attention would be on the ruler because that guy's in charge. Maybe his attention would be on the rich. Maybe his attention would be on the famous. But who is his attention on? It's on the weak and the needy and the poor. And he heals her. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. Jesus performs a miracle upon her that she and everyone else will remember for the rest of their lives. And she's a mustard seed in the sense that in the new creation, she'll be given a body and a glory that all of us would gasp in awe if we saw her. All of us would be in awe if we saw what she looked like in the kingdom of God. This little woman whom no one noticed in the back of the synagogue because she trusted in Jesus, is in the process and will be someone so glorious that we would probably be afraid of her if we saw her. It's what Jesus loves to do. He loves to take weak people crippled by sin and turn them into glorious children of God. And that's what he's done to her. She's a mustard seed that's become a tree. And one day... We're going to be so shocked and surprised at what, how glorious God has made her and how glorious God has made us. Two. Jesus is the ultimate mustard seed. Jesus is the ultimate mustard seed. One, one church father wrote this, or one teacher from a long time ago. Born a man... 
he was humbled like a seed, and in ascending to heaven, he was exalted like a tree. Isaiah 53.3 says, having no form or majesty that we should look at him. If we consider the life of Jesus, he was born in poverty, lived mostly in obscurity, and after a short ministry, he was executed. His followers deserted him at this point. This is not the kind of life any kid grows up dreaming of having. And yet, and yet, this is the man we worship with all our hearts. This is the man who is rescuing people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group as I speak. The moment Jesus was a tree more than ever was when he was hanging on one to save people like you and me. That moment looked like defeat. It looked like rejection. It looked like loss. And that's the reason any one of us right now can be 100% forgiven, 100% set free, 100% accepted by our God. Has something so unexpected, so small, ever accomplished so much as what our Lord Jesus did when he died? Never. Never in a million years. And how ironic that that's the moment we'll focus on more than ever in heaven. More than any other moment in heaven, we will reflect back on what Jesus did to Satan on the cross and setting us free from sin and death and misery. He's the ultimate mustard seed. The most unexpected victorer. Our, our Savior, who everyone thought had failed, he actually succeeded. So if you think right now your problems are too big for him to solve, I suggest you reconsider. I suggest you reconsider. Three. You and me are mustard seeds. You and me are mustard seeds. Since we're following Jesus, our life will roughly look like his, hopefully. So if he was, had an unremarkable life in many ways, if he had an ordinary life in many ways, if he had an undesirable life in many ways, what do you think our lives will be like? Now, just to be honest, our church consists of many ordinary, mostly unremarkable people, including me. None of us are famous. None of us are in the news. None of us have been in Forbes magazine or Time magazine or run a Fortune 500 company. We are a church of people who are pretty ordinary and pretty unremarkable in the eyes of the world. And yet what I want us to see this evening is that what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you could not be more remarkable. It couldn't be more remarkable. I mean, just compare it. Let's just compare it for a moment. Someone who's successful in the eyes of the world might say, man, I rose to the top of my company and I dominated for 20 or 30 years before I retired. Okay. Man, I succeeded on my sports team and I signed a professional contract and I made a few million dollars before I got hurt and retired. Okay. 
But in comparison, church, you can say, I was a dead man or a dead woman. I was dead. And the Lord of heaven and earth came and found me and brought me back to life. Because he chose me. And he put his Holy Spirit within me. And he entrusted to me the everlasting gospel to preach to other sinners to set them free as well. And he uses me on a day-by-day basis to fight against Satan until his kingdom comes back and fills the whole world. If we have eyes to see what's truly significant, we'll stop running after the things the world is running after and chasing after the things the world is chasing after. Okay, I'm a little surprised I'm doing this again. But there was this awesome film that came out when I was in middle school. Russell Crowe was General Maximus. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's this film called Gladiator. And the most striking thing that he said that keeps replaying in my mind when I think about that movie is what we do in life echoes in eternity. Church, the things that we do in life that will echo in eternity are not the things the world does that the world thinks are great. The things that will echo in eternity are showing hospitality to your neighbor, are showing up with a meal for someone who had a new baby, telling someone the gospel who you never told the gospel before, forgiving someone who sinned against you who didn't deserve it, These are the things that echo in eternity. The main point that I'm trying to get us to understand this evening is that the most remarkable thing that you could ever do is to live the ordinary Christian life well. The most extraordinary thing that any of us could ever do is live the ordinary Christian life well. I wonder if any of us struggle with the fact that we don't have a lot of recognition, that we don't have a lot of fame, that we don't stand out that much. Are you like me? I know I'm in that boat. Like I wish I had some sort of skill or some sort of success that a lot of people recognize me and thought, man, that dude's awesome, and I'm going to watch YouTube about him. But there isn't. And I'd be a fool if I wasted my time trying to get that. Because the most remarkable thing I could ever do isn't get a bunch of people to be interested in me. The most important thing I could ever do is love people like Jesus did. Even if no one notices but God. And then after 30, 40, 50, 60 years of doing that, I'll die and I'll go to heaven and be with the Lord. And the things that will be reminisced at, reminisced about there will be the awesome deeds that God did through us in ordinary Christian life, loving other people like Christ has loved us. Just think about it. We are sitting there in heaven around the banquet table of the Lamb, and we are looking at people we helped get to heaven or other people who wouldn't have been in heaven unless we told them about Jesus. What do you think will feel important at that moment? What do you think will feel significant at that moment? Will you care that you didn't make six figures? You won't. You will not care about that. 
You will care that God Almighty used you in a remarkable way to make an eternal impact on other people. So what I'm asking for us tonight, what I'm hoping for us tonight, is that we would readjust what we view as remarkable and what we view as significant and find the ordinary life of loving other people well like Jesus have loved us utterly significant. We'll never regret living like Christ has lived. We'll never regret loving like Christ has loved. Number four. So first mustard seed is the woman. Second mustard seed is Jesus. Third mustard seed is us. The fourth mustard seed is the church. Both the church at large and our church here. If you start off reading in the book of Acts, the church does not have a big start. It starts with a couple of guys who were scared and run away when Jesus died. And then he regathers them. Then he gives them his spirit. And then they begin a movement that changed the world. Bit by bit. That's going on right now all over the place. Even in Afghanistan. The ends of the world are being transformed right now as I speak. Through this little movement that started with a couple of unspectacular people. Who had a spectacular God. And this church right here, three years ago. We had a beginning that wasn't that spectacular. 19 of us took the Lord's Supper together in the Choi's backyard. That was the beginning. That was the beginning of what God is doing here. And already we have seen him do miraculous and mighty things. I know people now who will be in heaven forever because of the last three years of ministry who weren't there three years ago. Isn't that an amazing thing? And in spite of what God's done, this church still feels very seed-like. Still feels very ordinary. And that is okay. That is good. I'm okay being an ordinary church who loves people in ordinary ways as long as we do it passionately. And I think that our vision, our hope, our dream is that in partnership with other churches, that God would use us to change the spiritual landscape of South Minneapolis in the next few decades. To change the spiritual landscape here. But that's not going to happen by us seeking greatness. That's not going to happen by us seeking speaking platforms. That's not going to happen by us seeking wealth. The only way God will work, the only way I believe God will work and do great things through us that we'll marvel at is if we humbly seek him and humbly serve others. I'm inviting us to be very comfortable being seed-like as God makes us tree-like. Let's be okay being ordinary and doing ordinary things for Christ and let Christ turn those into extraordinary things that echo in eternity. So can you let go of tonight what you're seeking instead of those ordinary ways of loving others and loving Jesus? What is it? What is it? Is it success at your job? Is it some vacation? Is it some habit or video game or movie or something that you're holding on to? Some habit, some thing that won't allow you to completely give yourself to following Christ. What is it? 
Maybe you feel some apathy right now towards the Lord, towards reading your Bible, towards praying. The application what I'm hoping we get out of this message, what I'm hoping we do together, is that we would just do all the basic parts of Christianity with all of our hearts. With all of our hearts. If we started reading our Bibles and praying with all of our hearts and loving our neighbors with all of our hearts and going to work and doing our best with all of our hearts and telling other people about Jesus with all of our hearts, that, that's what I'm hoping for. But for that to happen, we have to surrender our dreams and lay them at the altar and be okay waiting on God to exalt us. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time he will exalt you. So church, are we comfortable being humbled under his mighty hand this evening? And are we okay surrendering those dreams that are taking us away from the ordinary mission, ordinary life? Jesus goes on in verse 19, keeps teaching here. He says, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Leaven's not much bigger than the seeds here. It's not much bigger at all. But the same principle applies. It's a little thing, and it has a huge impact. It spreads throughout the whole loaf of bread. It changes its properties. It has a huge impact. And Jesus is repeating himself with a different image, saying, I use the weak, the lowly, and the unexpected to do great things. So one final question I want to ask is why does Jesus prefer the weak and the lowly and the ordinary to do great things? Why? The answer is, is when he uses the lowly and the ordinary, it's clear that it was because of him that something happened. It's clear that it's because of his power that something happened. If we were rich, if we were powerful, if we were persuasive, wouldn't it seem like we had been successful if there was any success in our ministry at all? That'd be the case. But because we're ordinary, because we're regular, because we're unremarkable people, when God does something through us, he gets all the credit, church. It will be clear to the watching world that it wasn't us, but it was him who worked in us. And that's what we really want for our church, isn't it? At the end of the day, we want this church to be 100% about Jesus and not about us at all. And the fact that we depend on him and rely on him for our strength rather than our own is the reason why that's the case. So let's pray together.